Hello and welcome to Make and Tain, the podcast breaking the stigma and lifting the lid on inspiring people who are making a difference. This week on the podcast, we're breaking the stigma of OCD and mental health within men, as I'm joined by Sean Flores, a TEDx speaker three times in a row. He's an OCD and ADHD advocate, and he also is a host of a podcast called Flower Hour. Here's what's coming up on this week's episode. Everyone has intrusive thoughts. The best way to describe OCD is it's, there's a book by Jeffrey Swartz called Brain Lock, where your brain gets locked. It's just a faulty mechanism in the brain that just locks on the thought and it obsesses. You've got to forcibly move the gear, essentially, is the best How way. How do you get rid of that thought then? Like, what, well, well, what well, the, well, you don't. And the thought's not the issue. It's your reaction to the thought. Oh, okay. Like, I still get the thoughts to this day. It just doesn't bother me the same way it does. My themes change all the time. But what happened after that was, um, I remember I looked on the internet, I'm like, why am I having certain thoughts but I don't want to act on them? I saw OCD pop up. This podcast episode is, it's so powerful kind of hearing what kind of what Sean's been through, his upbringing, the kind of challenges he's faced in life a few times and how he stays strong each time. And I think it's so important with this podcast as well. It's about mental health within men as well. And for men to be more open and vulnerable about their emotions. And it's something I've kind of tackled with at times as well. And I think by having guests like Sean on, it really opens up your eyes to my own life. And like I said, it is such a powerful episode. So I hope you really enjoy it. Just before we jump into the podcast, if you can click that subscribe button, honestly, appreciate it so much. I just want to say as well, if you do enjoy it, please, please make sure to leave me a review. Honestly, it's much appreciated. Let's jump into the podcast with Sean Ford. So it's a pleasure to have you on, Sean Flores. Obviously, you've spoke very openly about kind of like OCD, mm. um, but your journey. Could you just do a little introduction to the listeners right now? How would I describe myself? So yeah, Sean Flores, I do mental health advocacy, article writing. What else do I do? I do, hmm, I do quite a few things actually. Yeah, I'm looking to train to be a therapist. I I previously modeled for a short space of time in my life as well. Uh, yeah, I don't know how to describe myself. Loads. Yeah, when I was yeah, like yeah. doing research, like, it covers like so many like different grounds. Yeah. I always, with the guests, I was like kind of going back to kind of, your upbringing, your story. Mm. Um, I know you you spoke previously just before the podcast started that your mum, she she originally like you found out the other day that she got sent to London. So I always, my mum and I had conversations, but she recently opened up to me about the fact that she was sent to the UK by my granddad who didn't like her boyfriend at the time. So, because he didn't like her boyfriend because of the skin color. So my granddad is what we know as Dogla, which is black and Indian mix. So um, he didn't like anyone that was dark skin, which was really contradictory because he was dark skin himself. And um, my mum's partner at the time when she was in Trinidad, I think she was working for the government at the time for what I understand, but I need to ask my mum more about her story. Yeah, he, my mum's partner at the time was super respectful, really nice guy, but my granddad didn't like him based on the color of his skin. So apparently my mum's partner at the time, he asked my mum for graduation, to go to her graduation. My granddad, so he had to ask my granddad. And from what I understand, my granddad had come back a week later. And by that time, he had sent my mum away to the UK. 
he sent her off to a nursing college. Uh, how did you get, how did that story get excited? Cause it's quite interesting. Um, yeah. The other day, like, I've, I only found out like my nan, like she, she was from a convent. And when I went to okay. Dundalk in Ireland, I got speaking to the locals and they mm. knew like the convent and everything. So mm. how did that conversation kind of get started when you were like, speaking to your mom? Well, I think I was talking to my mom about some of my own mental health issues and how I think a lot of the way she raised me, it's not her fault per se, but I think a lot of the way she raised me has impacted massively the way that I am here today. So for example, a lot of my friends who are, they're really emotional with me or they're quite physically affectionate. I really struggle with, cause I didn't grow up with someone who was very physically affectionate for me at the time. So I've realized a lot of what was happening for me has come from the way that I was raised. And when I started just having an open conversation about it, my mom sadly feels like she failed me and that's not the case. She didn't fail me. My mom's done a fantastic job and it's testament to her as to why I am the young man I am today. But then she opened up to me about something. She opened up to me about things that have happened to her. And I was just like, wow. So I'm hoping actually I can tell her story. I want to ask her more about her story, write it all down and to let the world understand more about more, it, 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 from where I've come from, I'm, I'm, I'm a direct result as a, I'm a direct product of my mother. So my mom just opened up to me about some things, not massively, but when I asked my mom about how did she feel, she's very, a bit, not blase, but a bit dismissive of it. And she just keep going that she had to survive. She had to survive. That was, that's all it was for my mom. She, she had to survive. She came to the UK with like no family, no friends. No family, so no I friends. I like nothing in that situation and like yeah. trying to, like you say, fight to survive. Right? Yeah. So she told me there were days when she cried her eyes out. She missed home. She missed her family. And, <clears throat> and she thought what um, my granddad did, her dad did was incredibly, well, it was cruel. It was a very cruel thing of what he did. But again, I need to ask her more about her story, but to realize I knew it a while ago, but she opened up to me more about it. And I was like, wow. And I think it really sunk in for me that you're in a foreign country. You don't know anyone. You've been sent here off your own back. You had your whole life back in Trinidad, but just because your father didn't like a man based on the color of his skin, you got sent to another country. So that's heartbreak, that's loss, that's grief, that's displacement. There's so many different things happening for my mum there that I don't even think she even has realised herself. And you, and you, you kind of mentioned like earlier, like, and I've heard this before, that sometimes like they don't even have time to reflect on their own mental health or like, am I depressed? Like that isn't even in the equation. Yeah. And I think a lot of like that generation as well, like, they're like, well, I need to survive. Like, mm. why, you know what I mean? They don't have that time at all, really. Yeah, some people would argue that depression and anxiety are luxuries. That's what some people would turn around and say, which I can understand that viewpoint. I think it's oversimplified in some aspects as well. I think some things obviously happen in in your brain, chemically speaking, as a result of the environment. And not everyone is built to survive certain environments. Some people need an environment that's more fostering, more nurturing, more creative. But yes, for my mum, she just had to survive and she's never had to comprehend. I'm not probably feeling the best, but even if she did, she had to probably per se, as some people would say, suck it up and to keep going. And in the long run, that doesn't do anything beneficial. That creates years of insurmountable pain and so much more. And 
as I've gotten older, I'm 29 now and I've looked at my mum's relationship with her own emotions and my relationship with her. And I actually said to my mum openly, I want us to have a better relationship. I love you. I care about you, but I don't feel connected to you. I don't feel like I know you the way I want to be able to know you. And I, I, how I use that statement is it's, it's, it's a reference point. I look at a lot of my other friends and they're able to have a very open, easy conversation of conversations with their parents. Obviously their parents probably to some degree haven't been through what my mum's been through, but I desire and I'm craving for that, you know, maternal relationship with my mother that I think I really needed when I was younger. Cause obviously my dad died on Christmas day when I was six. So I lost out on my father, but my mum also lost out on her partner. She lost out on the father to her child. My mum's been through a lot. Yeah. And I, obviously she's been through so much what you kind of explained, but I, your upbringing and stuff, like, do you feel like there's parts of your upbringing like you felt like you was missing or you look you looked at other kids and you thought they're getting that or whether that's love or whether that's is it I don't know emotions or what was that for you I, I think my mum did such a good job of placing the or filling the gap of my father that I never comprehended what his loss did to me when I was younger and what that meant for me growing up was I just never really questioned it. I, I knew my dad died. I, How old were you? Six. So when I, he died in the year 2000, he died when I was six years old. Um, he woke up, was having a heart attack. I had to call. My mum always trained me for the moment of when he was going to go um, in the sense of she prepared me for tough moments. So because, because she was a nurse, she said, she, she she just made sure if anything was to happen, I knew what to do. I knew the phone number for the house. I knew the address of the house and I knew what I needed to say. So I remember I called the phone, I called the ambulance and I told them that my dad was having a heart attack. My mum's trying to resuscitate. And next thing we knew, the ambulance came and took him out. And I, I remember I went downstairs, there was a knock on the door, two police officers came and um yeah, they told me that my father had gone and I came up and I told my mum and yeah, apparently she had screamed. I don't remember everything fully, but I remember there was also the moment where my mum held me in her arms and I held my dad's dead body. And I said it, you know, I asked my mum, is my dad coming back? And she was like, no, he's in heaven now. And I called that moment a cold hand of injustice. I remember that moment. I was like, my dad's dead. He's no longer alive. I hated the idea of God and I stopped believing in God because I thought, how could a God so cruel take him away? Yeah, yeah so take him away. But yeah, I my mum did such a good job to and my aunties, so my mum's friends, um, they all came together and promised to raise me when my dad died. They promised to take care of me and, and they kept their there, promise. Yeah, yeah. They kept their promise. They were all at my graduation um, as well. They've been to some of my um, public speaking jobs, like my TED Talks. They come around regularly. But sadly, recently I lost one of my aunties. She, terminal cancer killed her. And she was one of the aunties that was such a big moment, uh, uh, a big anchor in my mum's life when my dad died, my auntie Merle. So that was hard as well to comprehend her loss. And she died earlier this year, a couple, like about a month ago. Um, so this was before my surgery. I went to her funeral and seeing what cancer did to her, terminal cancer, started off with pancreatic, went to the liver, then it went to the spleen. And um, I remember some of the final moments I had with her, I just said to her, thank you for keeping your promise to my dad, you know? And that was hard. It was hard. Them final words of yeah, I mean, at the time when you're probably six years old, you probably don't realize the effects losing your dad's gonna have at that age. And like I spoke about this in another podcast, my dad lost his dad at the age of three. Mm. Do you realize afterwards 
that kind of avoid and and that kind of effect because I hear from my mum like my dad that it still grieves and yeah obviously he was only three so he doesn't obviously remember too much and there isn't like many pictures as well mm. which makes it worse as well and I mean he's got nothing to kind of reflect back on you know mm. the memories like. so for me I think I'm in a state of trying to find myself through the loss of my dad so it, it's it gets easier with time but I still miss my father to this day and I think because a lot of the trauma that happened around my dad's death I don't remember much about my father at all I remember he took me to the to the pond and we would feed the ducks together he took me to McDonald's he bought me my first dictionary when I was younger that was the day before he died so Christmas Eve we went to Clapham Junction Devonham's and I remember it was snowing and he bought me yeah, a dictionary and that was hard because I still have the dictionary somewhere in the house but I never comprehended his loss until I got older I never I, I can't fathom what it was like and recently I found all the photo albums with pictures of him and I found my half-brother a couple of years ago. And then again, last year, what happened was my half-brother died. So I got in contact with my half-brother. I was super excited to see him. How old was he? He, so my half-brother was 62 when he died. My dad had me at 62. So- Cause I heard that you was a miracle child. Yeah, I was technically, yeah. I was the miracle yeah. child. So my mom wasn't supposed to be able to have kids. From what I understand, she had fibroids. And she went to the doctor, the GP, and the GP said, you're pregnant. And apparently she was really shocked. My mom wanted yeah. to be a career woman. From what, and my mom had me in at 44. So she wasn't supposed to be able to have a child. And I know for my mom, that probably meant a lot, the miracle child. So yeah, um, I met, I found my half brother online. And I was that first meeting, like, I obviously- I broke down in tears because yeah. he looks just like our father. And I was so excited. I was just so happy to meet him, but there was something that was disconnected between us. If my half brother ever reached out to me, I'll be like, bro, come round, let's make a relationship. But there was something disconnected between us. I couldn't understand what it was. And I asked him about what happened between our father and him. He didn't really want to go into it. It's just, apparently our dad didn't treat him very well. And my half brother was gay as well. I don't know whether that was the case. I have no idea. I have no answers. So the first time I met my half brother was at our, our dad's funeral. So I don't remember this, but apparently he gave, went up and gave a speech and my mum never heard from him again. And he refused to keep in contact, you know, and the last time I ever met my half brother was last year at his own funeral. So what happened was, uh, we were doing regular phone calls every week and I was so excited. Like I wanted to, build this relationship. How old did you at that point when you found your half brother? So I was probably around 26, 27, yeah, 26 probably. Um, an ex-girlfriend helped me to find him. I don't remember how, but she helped me to find him. We, so cause his mom still had our dad's surname, Flores. And um, yeah, so basically we, we kept in contact every week. He was giving me some advice and more. And then one time when I was high, I said to him, I really want a relationship with you. I said, it's really important to me. I can't change what's happened between our father. But I said, I want a relationship with you. And he just basically told me to leave him alone. He can't help me with the search for the family. Like he, well, ushered me off, right? So when I was on the phone to my therapist going through my breakdown of, with, with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, I said to my therapist, I want to make some goals. And one of the goals I wanted to make was to have a, to get back in contact with him. And when I searched for him on Facebook, I found that he died, if I remember correctly, on the 25th of August. So I turned up at his funeral. I went, I didn't know if I should have gone. And I just felt so out of place. I was just a bit like, 
I'm mourning someone I never really got the chance to know, but I'm mourning what I wanted it to be, not what it could have been. Mm. My half brother didn't seem to have the emotional or mental capacity. I don't know what happened. I have no idea what's happened between him and our father. There's no, I don't have an answer. And nothing ever kind of came out of it when, when you spoke to him. And yeah, he, he didn't really want, it, yeah. he didn't really want to go into anything. Maybe it was too much pain for him. And how, he was quite old though at that point, wasn't he? My brother would have been, so he died when he was 62. Yeah. So yeah, he was considerably older, basically 40 years older than me. That's what I mean when, when they're setting the ways as well. Imagine yeah. it, they don't want to bring all that trauma up. They've probably, tucked it away, put it in a black box somewhere. Mm. And then obviously I don't know what, you don't know what's happened. Like yeah. you have to bring all that kind of emotion up again is, it's probably quite traumatic. I was going to ask with your mental health when you were younger, you've obviously, you've spoke very open about OCD, but before that, was there any like signs or kind of symptoms no. Yeah. So what's really funny is I now look back at my journey when I was younger. So when my dad died, I couldn't sleep in um, my own bed. I used to have a lot of nightmares from what I remember. And I would come into the room typically when my mom and my dad were alive, uh, when my dad was alive, sorry, my mom would be on the left-hand side of the bed and my dad would be on the right-hand side. And I'd come into the middle and I'd just turn over whoever when I wake up in the middle of the night. So my auntie, unfortunately, that actually died recently, my auntie Mel, she um, came to come and stay with me and my mum one day and she came into the same bed. And what happened was obviously my dad had died by then. So I woke up in the middle of the night and I, as I turned over to my right, I was like, dad, dad, you're back. And I woke up, it was my auntie. So for years I couldn't sleep in my own bed until I was around like maybe 11 or 14, maybe. I can't remember, I need to ask my mum. So when I went away to a camping trip, I woke up and I was very claustrophobic and I ripped open the whole tent. And now I look back and I realize probably how that trauma was starting to really play out. But over the years, I never really questioned anything. I never really had a comprehension of what mental health was. It's only now as I've gotten older, is I've, I've become more in touch with my own emotions, how I feel, which has been a challenging journey within itself. But before that, there were no symptoms that I was aware of. It's now looking back, mm. I'm realizing there was always, it was always there. There was a lot of unhealed stuff I really needed to work on. Was like mental health ever kind of spoke about in, within the family? I mean, no. it wasn't really spoke about even like within my family and, and especially like uh, before the podcast, I was kind of speak about mm. Nathan from Mental Roots and he was like saying within like the black community, like they don't, it's not as openly kind of spoke mm -hmm. about and like you've kind of mentioned before, like in terms of therapists, like there isn't many kind of black therapists mm. or people who have been through the same journey as yourself, who they can kind of resonate with. I mean, how is that kind of within your family? Like but nobody spoke about my dad's death. Everyone just kind of got on with it. And I think it's because they had to support my mum. My mum was raising a, a boy in the UK and one of her biggest fears she always said to me was she didn't want me to become another statistic. That was something that was really important to my mum. She didn't want me to become another statistic. So we used to go back to Trinidad every single year, twice a year. My mum sacrificed a lot. She really did. My mum doesn't do designer clothes. We ate the same pretty much five, six meals a year. We used to go out for a little Chinese or we used to go to a Nepalese restaurant in Putney. My mum- Always putting the family first before always, anyone else. My mum yeah. put me first and it's only recently have I realized how much she put me first. My mum sacrificed a lot and it actually makes me quite emotional because 
I can't imagine what that would have been like. You lose the father to your child, you lose your husband, you lose the person you built a life with and you just have to get on with it. My mom went through six months of really severe depression. She left her keys in the door, her shoes on top of the car, she had panic attacks. My mom lost her confidence. And to this day, I think she still has never really been the same. She hasn't, she's not been the same. And then sadly, over a couple of years ago, my mom got back in contact with the guy that, um, my granddad sent her away from. Um, and I, I'll never forget this. She turned up at this guy's door and I just saw the smile on her face and his face. And I was like, what is going on? Yeah, what's here? going on here? Yeah. And um, she, she wanted me to call him uncle. I'm like, that's not my uncle. And I think at one point she wanted me to call him dad. I'm like, that's not my dad. I have a big respect for him, massive respect for him. But sadly he got vascular dementia. He rapidly declined and he's in a home now. So my mom lost him too. There's a lot of loss, isn't there? Like, a massive amount yeah. of loss. And he was a big father figure to me in the sense of he never forced himself on me. He never imposed himself upon me. He just offered a very different perspective on the world. So yeah, my mum lost my father. She lost her first love as well. Yeah. I mean, it's good that, are you the, obviously before you're half sibling, mm. you're the only kind of- So I'm the only child for my mum. Yeah. From what I understand, my dad had me, my brother. Um, and apparently we have another brother but we have no idea how to find him. Mm. If I'm going to find him, I'm going to have to go through records. I'm going to have to do like the family tree and yeah. everything else. So I did ancestry DNA and I found some cousins, but I don't know how I'd find my dad's side. My dad's other son apparently is what my older brother said to me. Apparently there's another child. How was going back to like Trinidad and obviously mm. back to like, obviously mum's roots and stuff. Was that, was that like an eye opening experience? Like, was it nice to be close to knowing nowhere where your mum's from? Like? Yeah, so Trinidad for me, every single year when we used to go back was, it was a beautiful experience. Uh, it taught me a lot about who I am now. You know, I was able to bring back things like papaya or cocoa, cocoa pods is what I used to bring back. And I used to be able to talk about it in class. You know, I was the exotic kid, essentially. Other, other kids were connected to their roots, but I think looking back, I was really connected because my mum took me back. But I wish I stayed in Trinidad for a lot longer. I wish I lived out there, being part of the culture, being deeply immersed. Cause I think going home twice a year for three weeks or six weeks, it's great, but it's not enough. But Trinidad wasn't always a holiday. It, I would go and earn my holiday. So I'd be learning skills. I'd be cleaning. I would be mowing the lawn. I'd be cooking, learning how to make ice cream from scratch, you know, putting salt and ice and turning oh, it and churning. Wow, yeah. Like it was an experience for me growing up. And this is why I want to go back to Trinidad for a very long time. I think I need to go back and be, I haven't gone back to Trinidad for about seven years now about seven years, seven, eight years. I haven't been on holiday for seven, eight years either. But yeah, going back to Trinidad was beautiful. It was a beautiful experience. The food, the culture, being around family, you know, massively. Family is massively important. Yeah, I can imagine that. And I, it sounds like that obviously when your dad passed away, like all your family kind of gathered together. And I, I mean, family means everything. I, I can imagine that. Yeah, family does mean everything to my mum. And my mum, I think my family have now really started to see how much my mum needed it. My mum spent the best part of her years- Did she ever get therapy by the way? No, my mum doesn't yeah. believe in therapy. My mum, <laughs> funnily enough, years ago when I said to my mum, can we go and get some a mother and son counseling? She said, no, church is my therapy. I don't need therapy. But I've said to my mum recently, it'll be good for us to go to therapy. And I think now she's more open to open the to idea. The idea like but I think it's because the, 
Because she's super religious as well, yeah. When I, I Not super, but she's got a strong belief and a strong faith in God. She talks about how much God kept her going. She talks about how much she obviously believes in Jesus. But I left, I departed from the church years ago. It had a really big impact in my life, but I'm not very religious per se. But yeah, my mum believes heavily in um, God and family for her is really, really important. She still goes to church quite regularly, but as she's gotten older, she hasn't been able to go to church. But the next couple of years of my life, I really want to spend some proper good quality time with my mother. That's something really important to me. Yeah, no, I think that's so important. I think as you get older, you kind of appreciate, like you say, everything they do for you. And like, mm. and like when you kind of understand the roots of and where they've come from, you kind of better understand your mom and, and the way she is today kind of thing. Yeah, because for years, I didn't understand why my mom was the way that she was. I just couldn't understand this kind of cold attitude or cold demeanor. I knew she loved me, but I didn't feel it. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, somebody loves you, but it's different to feel that love. And I look back now and I realize my mom just had a lot of unresolved trauma and unresolved issues. And I know trauma is a buzzword for a lot of people, but I now understand it a lot more. Like, yeah. you know, I catch myself now, like being really annoyed sometimes with my mom. And I'm like, Sean, that's not how we're going to act, man. We can make better decisions or, mm. I try to say to my mum when I'm really annoyed at the food that she's cooked because it's the same old stuff. I'm like, do you know what? Thank you, mum. I appreciate that. Mm. Just small things to make her day better. Like reflect it and like very yeah, reflective. Yeah. I catch myself a lot more now. Just and I think being, if you reflect on yourself, then you kind of better understand other yeah. people as well. Like absolutely. Because if you never look inwards, then you're never gonna be better, or you're never gonna move forward in that way. Right? Yeah, and I think my mum's never had the opportunity to look as inwardly as I have the opportunity to. It's because of my mum's hard work. <laughs> she paved the foundation to be, to allow me to be the man that I am today. She gave me the freedom. She gave me the autonomy to be the man that I am today. And when I was around 15, I hated my mum. I hated her. I was really angry. I was really upset at her. And I think I said stuff to her such as, I wish my dad was alive. I wish you weren't here. Um, Cause I was angry. I was frustrated. I was like, why do you keep, why are you like this with me? You know, we never had, we never had conversation. My mom used to beat me, which is a typical Caribbean thing. I don't agree with physically hitting children. I think it's abuse. If I wouldn't hit a woman, why would I hit a child? That's my mentality. I know everyone's different. Some yeah. people believe in physical, but I don't agree with it. I think abuse is abuse regardless. Um, but I knew my mom beat me out of frustration because she was worried that I was going off, off the straight and now we're onto the wide end bad side of the world essentially and the school that I went to I was going to say is that really art because I think your kind of upbringing mm. I obviously plays a massive part and going on like the right path in life and I had a, a guest on last week like Mickey Dax and uh, he got on the, the wrong path because of his brother and like mingling mm. with the wrong people and he changed it all around now but even like my parents are from Salford and they wanted to get me out of that environment in Manchester and, and they put me in and moved away mm. to Bolton to where I'm from. But I mean, I imagine it's different for everyone, but I mean, do you think that could have easily been a different story for you now if you, if you went on the wrong path? Oh, potentially that would have probably been a very easy for me to go off onto the wrong path. Um, but also I don't have the character and the heart that other people have to do certain things. Like, obviously I'm a kid. I've done certain things to be able to, this is something I was talking about a lot in um, therapy actually about trauma and a lot, a lot of the things that I've gone through to be able to survive really hard times. But I've never 
gone on certain paths that other kids from my school went on per se. And I don't judge them. They're not bad people. Everyone's surviving. They're getting it how they had to get it. And, but most of the boys I went to school with about 80, 80%, 70, 80% of my school were black boys. Most of them were from single parent households. Most of the time it was mums raising them. And I can now look at the themes. And for example, there was a teacher in our school called Mr. Dove that we all used to really look up to old Caribbean man. And he was firm with all of us really firm, but, Sadly, he's not quite well at the moment. I think from what I understand, there's slightly, it's either Alzheimer's or dementia. Yeah, yeah. So I want to go and see him and just say thank you, you for do, taking yeah. a big part and helping to raise us to be the young men that we are today. But I easily could have potentially gone off on the wrong path. And I was saying this to my friends recently that with the kind of intelligence I have, I could easily be very calculated as a criminal, but I try not to do anything like that in that sense because I'm aware of the repercussions of those decisions. And I watched Oppenheimer last night and it's a great film, but it was playing it. I don't want to ruin the film for anyone watching, but it talks, it, it plays a lot to the idea of conscience, blood on your hands and so much more. And there's a lot of things I don't think I could have done the same way other boys had done. Yeah. It's interesting when you, you spoke about your teacher then, because I think having that role model when you're younger, I think teachers play such a massive part because they can have like such a big influence on you. And like you say, he was like being firm. And mm. I read a book another day and it's it's about a, a tutor which he got um, Alzheimer's and one of his old students reached back out to him before it, it got really bad. No, it wasn't Alzheimer's, so it was ALS. So his body was shutting down. Okay. And his old tutor reached back out to him and every Tuesday, it's called Tuesdays with Murray. Um, they talked about life lessons. So like mm. greed... Um, happiness, like love, relationship. And it, it's just an incredible story how obviously his tutor rekindled this relationship with his tutor and every Tuesday he would like meet up with him and they'll talk mm. about a different thing and obviously they wrote this book together. Mm. And um, it's incredible because I think, I don't know, I've I've had it in my life where like my tutor, someone's like, it's called John Pritchard. He, had, he really believed in me and um, it changes your mindset. I think it changes like who you are in some ways. Like, yeah, yeah. having a teacher that really believes in you is everything. Mm. You know, he was a really good teacher and a lot of the teachers in school, I understand teaching is a very hard profession, but having teachers there that really want you to be the best that you can be, they are, they have a massive impact in your life going forward. And I used to look at some of my teachers who really pushed me to be the young man that I am now. And I'm massively grateful. There's teachers I still recognize to this day that I say hello to, there's people, that I look back at my life and I've realized I've all played a big part into who I am today for yeah. sure. And you don't ever really, you don't forget bad teachers. You don't forget good teachers as well. Yeah. You know, because you spend your most formative years learning so and building well, yeah. and yeah, as you get older, you start spending more time in school than you do if your parents tells yeah, you something. Yeah, man. I wanted to kind of touch upon obviously OCD and it's a topic you've been so open about on other podcasts and articles. Um, and it's something that really surprised me because I wasn't aware, when you think of OCD, like there's a stigma attached here, just like someone cleaning too much or sure. doing the, the kind of repeated pattern like three, four mm. times in a row. Can we talk about your kind of journey with OCD and how it got started? And it, how they had to get it. And But most of the boys I went to school with, about 80, 80%, 70, 80% of my school were black boys. Most of them were from single parent households. Most of the time it was mums raising them. And... I can now look at the themes. And for example, there was a teacher in our school called Mr. Dove that we all used to really look up to, old Caribbean man. And he was firm with all of us, really firm. But 
sadly he's not quite well at the moment i think from what i understand there's slightly it's either alzheimer's or dementia yeah, yeah. so i want to go and see him and just say thank you, you for do, yeah. taking a big part in helping to raise us to be the young men that we are today but i easily could have potentially gone off on the wrong path and i was saying this to my friends recently that with the kind of intelligence i have i could easily be very calculated as a criminal but i try not to do anything like that in that sense because I'm aware of the repercussions of those decisions. And I watched Oppenheimer last night and it's a great film, but it was playing it. I don't want to ruin the film for anyone watching, but it talks, it, it plays a lot to the idea of conscience, blood on your hands and so much more. And there's a lot of things I don't think I could have done the same way other boys had done. Yeah. It's interesting when you, you spoke about your teacher then, because I think having that role model when you're younger, I think teachers play such a massive part. They can have like such a big influence on you. And like you say, he was like being firm. And mm. I read a book another day and it's it's about a, a tutor which he got um, Alzheimer's and one of his old students reached back out to him before it, it got really bad. No, it wasn't Alzheimer's, so it was ALS. So his body was shutting down. Okay. And his old tutor reached back out to him and every Tuesday, it's called Tuesdays with Murray. Um, they talked about life lessons. So like mm. greed... Um, happiness, like love, relationship. And it, it's just an incredible story how obviously his tutor rekindled this relationship with his tutor and every Tuesday would like meet up with him and they'll talk mm. about a different thing and obviously they wrote this book together. Mm. And um, it's incredible because I think, I don't know, I've I've had it in my life where like my tutor, someone's like, it's called John Pritchard, he, had, he really believed in me and um it changes your mindset. I think it changes like who you are in some ways. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. having a teacher that really believes in you is everything. Mm. You know, he was a really good teacher and a lot of the teachers in school, I understand teaching is a very hard profession, but having teachers there that really want you to be the best that you can be, they are, they have a massive impact in your life going forward. And I look at some of my teachers who really pushed me to be the young man that I am now. And I'm massively grateful. There's teachers I still recognize to this day that I say hello to, there's people, that I look back at my life and I've realized I've all played a big part into who I am today for yeah. sure. And you don't ever really, you don't forget bad teachers. You don't forget good teachers as well. Yeah. You know, because you spend your most formative years learning so and building well, yeah. and yeah, as you get older, you start spending more time in school than you do with your parents. Tells yeah, you something. Yeah, man. I wanted to kind of touch upon obviously OCD and it's a topic you've been so open about on other podcasts and articles. Um, and it's something that really surprised me because I wasn't aware, when you think of OCD, like there's a stigma attached to just like someone cleaning too much or sure. doing the, the kind of repeated pattern like three, four mm. times in a row. Can we talk about your kind of journey with OCD and how it got started? Yeah, so let me take you back about five to six years ago. I woke up with um, this intrusive thought that I, I had chlamydia. So I would go to the clinic every single time over and over repeatedly and just keep getting checked constantly. I couldn't stop. I was obsessed with the idea that I had it. I couldn't let go of the feeling. I was worried. Anytime I went to the toilet, if it hurt a little bit, oh no, no, it's time to go get checked. And they reached a point where they kept asking me, why do I keep coming back? Why do I keep, I'm like, I don't know. It got so bad that I paid 300 pounds for a same day test result. And I was like, this needs to stop. That fear migrated onto HIV. I don't like needles, but I was prepared to get my blood taken. So I had blood taken, that one kind of left. Then there was a time when I woke up and I had this dream and it was just a dream of a guy in boxers. And I woke up 100% convinced I was gay. So illogical. I thought that overnight my sexuality had pretty much changed. And that's obviously not how sexuality 
works. But I could not stop obsessing. I threw up in the toilet. And at the time I was in a modeling industry and I was going through what I now look back and I realized was disordered eating. I had, I had, I'm very careful with the word eating disorder because I want to do it justice to the people that still live with it. But I had disordered eating. I starved myself. I drank four liters of water on mornings that with diuretics, you know, just to make sure I kept my cheekbones. I was 83 kg, I'm 100 kg now. I'd had very obsessive behavior. So anytime I went to the sauna steam room, if there was a guy that I could admit was good looking, meant I was gay. If he had a good physique and I could acknowledge it, meant I was gay. It was repetitive over and over and over again. Um, I even opened, told my friends, I think I'm gay. And my friends were like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. But there was something that just didn't sit with me. I was like, I know I'm not, but why can't I stop obsessing about it? It interfered with my sex life as well. So if I was able to get an erection, it would be like, wait, hold up. How am I able to get an erection? I'm gay. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. If I couldn't get one, I was like, this means I've got e- erectile dysfunction and this finally means I'm gay. It was obsessive. It so was in everything. If I, one thing doesn't go right, it's literally like constantly like Constant. thinking about it over and over. over and over. Obsessively. Quite Which drive you like, insane. Like, yeah, it drove yeah. me insane. I woke up one morning with intrusive thoughts from the minute I woke up to the minute I slept the anxiety was constant over and over. Then that that fear kind of still sat there. But then there was a moment for me when I was with one of my friends, a female friend of mine, who um, we, yeah, we just used to chill together. And um, just a word, rape popped into my head and I just had a big breakdown. I was like, no, 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 I'm so scared. I'm gonna do something. Why am I having that word in my head? I remember I said to her, I'm convinced I must be hearing voices. I said, it must be voices I'm hearing. So I screamed at her to leave. And I kept asking her before that. I was like, are you sure I haven't done anything? Are you sure I haven't done anything? Because in my head, I thought I must have done something. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. How have I not done something to have that word in my head? She's like, Sean, you haven't done anything. You're okay. But I I literally screamed at her to leave. Um, So I tried to sleep. And when I tried to sleep, I had images of suicide and blood in my head. And I was like, there's something wrong there's something wrong. So I went downstairs and at the time outside of my house, there was a COVID testing center, put on my coat, got my keys and I gave them my keys and I said to them that I'm going crazy. I said, I'm hearing voices. I said, I must be hearing voices. The woman was like, no, you're okay. You're fine. You're just going through a bad trip at the moment. So when I was sober again, cause I, I was on cannabis at the time, I calmed down. It's like, oh, I'm fine. Wait, yeah. I'm okay. By, the, by then I had called my friend. Um, he came to my house, we ordered Nando's. The ambulance came after that. And they said they wanted to check up on me mental health wise. So I went to the hospital and I said, no, I'm gonna be okay. Let me go get therapy. So I started therapy via a charity called Black Minds Matter at the time. It made my obsessions worse because you typically start talk therapy. For OCD, you need something called CBTERP, okay. which is cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure response prevention, which helps to expose you to the idea of the thoughts, but makes you realize it's just a thought. Mm. Everyone has intrusive thoughts. The best way to describe OCD is it's, there's a book by Jeffrey Swartz called Brain Lock, where your brain gets locked it's just a faulty mechanism in the brain that just locks on the four and it obsesses. You've got to forcibly move the gear, essentially is the best How'd way. How do you get rid of that four then? Like, what, well, 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 yeah. well, you don't. And the four's not the issue. It's your reaction to the four. Oh, okay. Like I still get the thoughts to this day. It just doesn't bother me the same way it does. My themes change all the time. But what happened after that was, um, as I remember I looked on the internet, I'm like, why am I having certain thoughts but I don't want to act on them? I saw OCD pop up. I'd be on the train. And um, if I had the f- word rape pop up into my head, when I'm looking at a female, I'd start panicking. I remember I'd start being like, oh my God, oh my God, I don't want to do anything like this. Why is it in my head? It was really bad. Mm-hmm. Then the final point for me was when I was outside of one of my friends, 
I was on the back of a bus. There was a guy in front of me in the fort, fight me, fight him, popped up into my head. And I said to my friend, I need to get off the bus. Had a big breakdown, cried. And I said, I've been here before. I know what to do. But I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know this was a panic attack slash anxiety attack. So we went around the corner to a shop. And when I was in the shop, the image of suicide just popped right into my head. Just me jumping off of a bridge. I said to him, I can't do this anymore. So I got into an Uber, cried all my way home. I looked at my friends dead in the eye and I told him I no longer wanted to be alive. And my friend Julian was really upset. He was, he had tears in his eyes, but I just didn't know what was going on. And I had an old TV that I accidentally broke. So we went into the park, smashed the TV in the hope that to get this, all this anger and frustration, I would help. Didn't It helped for a bit, it didn't help in the long yeah. term. For the next couple of days, I didn't want to be alive. I remember I looked at the clock and I just wanted time to go by because everything felt like a burden. I could barely eat, I could barely, I, all I wanted to do was sleep. And every time I woke up, I was like, fuck, I'm still alive. I've still got to go through this. Um, and on Saturday, the 4th of June, I woke up and I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I remember I found this therapist online called Emma Garrick, the anxiety whisperer. And I begged her for a phone call and I actually still have the screenshotted messages. And I just said, what's wrong with me? I've got, I said, these intrusive thoughts, they're not me, this anxiety, what's going on? She called me on that Saturday, the 4th of June. And um, I just started crying my eyes out. And I said, what's wrong with me? Why do I think I'm gay? Why do I think I'm a rapist? And why do I think I'm suicidal? She said, Sean, you have OCD. Um, and we begun therapy that Monday. It's mad, isn't it? Cause you don't think of OCD as like, if, like intrusive, obsessive, intrusive unwanted thought. thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No one does. Not many people do. Like you, you know, when you think about channel four, obsessive compulsive cleaners, right? Yeah. You People people think OCD is just about cleaning and symmetry yeah, yeah. because of shows like that. But it's the intrusive thoughts that people have. Like if I don't clean this, my auntie might die. Or if I don't clean this, something bad's gonna happen. That's OCD. It's the what if questions, it's the uncertainty, it's the doubt. It's otherwise known of the, as the, it's otherwise known as the madness of doubt or the doubt of madness, either yeah. one of those two. So yeah, I didn't believe that what I have had in my wildest dreams could have ever been OCD. So obviously like, with your OCD, like as soon as you obviously got that therapist, would you say like she kind of like saved your life in like some ways like with- She didn't take, save my life in some way. She yeah. saved my life in every way. She gave me hope when I had no hope. I cried my eyes out most sessions for about five to six sessions. I just cried my eyes out and I told her I was broke. I said, I have no money. Cause what happened before that I was having breakdowns. I was constantly crying. I didn't know what was going on in my head. I'd go to work and I just couldn't focus. She saved my life. She gave me hope when I had no hope. She gave me confidence when I had no confidence. She helped me, for example, to be able to go to the sh to my GP to pick up the antidepressants. She reminded me that you still need to go out and work. And at the time I was trying to do modeling. So there was jobs that I could do. I turned down jobs because of how bad my anxiety was. Like, I was like, I can't do this right now. Like, that's how bad it was. And yeah, Emma Garrick, she saved my life. No other way for me to put it. We come from two different worlds. Um, she's a white- S Scottish, yeah. Yeah, white Scottish lady. And I we, I often laugh, her and I would laugh about things and I'd be like, not, never in a million years could I have ever imagined we could have been able to, and I've never met her in person, bear this in mind. It's only been virtual, but she gave me hope. And I said to her, why are you so kind? And you know, what can I do to say thank you? She said, go and tell the world your story. And I said, I, I think at the time I wasn't sure if I could tell the world my story. So what happened was one morning I woke up and I was still believing I was bipolar, schizophrenic, uh, BPD. I believed I was everything under the sun. I just quite literally had a moment where I was like, fuck this, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm gonna go and change the world. And I went downstairs and I opened up my Google docs and I wrote my story. And from then on, it was a snowball effect. 
How many sessions? I want to ask when when you did get that therapy, did it click straight away when you knew like CBT was was the right way? Because obviously you you kind of speak about talking therapy and that made it worse. So talking therapy is still CBT, but the issue is the CBT ERP is more specific to the OCD. That's the more specific part. It didn't click straight away. It took a very long time for me to be able to get to a point where I'm like, when I'm having these thoughts, it's okay. I don't need to learn to react. I remember I'd have like still thoughts about all sorts and I'd still react. And it's just as time went on, I started to realize from doing the exposures, watching something and sitting with the anxiety and realizing this is just anxiety. Anxiety can be present and I can still live. So it took a while, but um, I had no money. She she took me on when I had no money and I still owe her money to this day, actually, funnily enough. But she knows I'm rebuilding my life because Emma was with me from the beginning mm. to everything that was going on in my life. And let me give you some context. So I had my OCD diagnosis. I tore my ACL, MCL meniscus and fractured my right leg in football. Then I ended up in hospital for three days with pneumonia, severe pneumonia that nearly killed me. So I remember I woke up in the morning, it just felt like I couldn't breathe on the left side. And they thought it was COVID, the ambulance came. So the next morning when the pain was horrible, they called me, they took me to the um, hospital. I remember I was sitting in A&E and I was just on the ground, just like, I felt like I was gonna pass out. So one of the other patients or people waiting in the queue said, you need to get this man some help. They took yeah. me for, I think it was an MRI or a X-ray. And they said, you've got pneumonia completely in your left lung. How do you get that? They, they were confused too. They had no idea what happened. So they took me for three days, pumped me with antibiotics, pumped me. And at the time I had another OCD breakdown. I thought I was suicidal. I was having the suicidal thought. I had gone up to hundred milligrams of sertraline in the hospital and um, I was having the conveyor belt thoughts and I was terrified I was going to murder everyone. Like those are the kind of thoughts I was having. Um, I survived that. Then after that, my cousin got murdered. He got found in a boot. Um, Jesus. Yeah, he got shot. He got shot and killed. We didn't know he was involved in drugs in Trinidad. So he had been killed and I grew up with him. He was my neighbor down the road. My cousin, we were super close. Then after that, my auntie died. Then after that, the other auntie with cancer I think the cancer by then had gone to her liver. So that was another thing mm -hmm. on top of that. Then my half brother died. So it was one thing after, after another and after another. And this year I'm still rebuilding because my auntie died yeah. obviously about a month ago. And then I just had my surgery Monday, August the 14th. Um, so it's been coming, it's going to be five weeks tomorrow. And my life has been a journey to say the least. It. How do you keep your head above water? I, I mean, it must be hard Like. Mm. I mean, it's incredible. Like, the, like I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't know. And I said to Emma, being so strong and obviously now sharing your story as mm. well. Like, and when it, it's all quite, you know what I mean? It happened so soon as well. I really don't know. There's something in me, and I was saying this to my therapist that there's something in me that refuses to quit. That's amazing. Man. There's something yeah. in me that refuses to give up. There's something in me. That you're helping so many people now, obviously, mm. by you being like so open and honest about OCD, but also obviously everything else which has happened in like you because there's going to be other people which resonate with this or they know they've lost someone recently and to show that obviously being so strong and that you can share your story that obviously it's going to help other people right i i hope so and that's the belief and sadly as well there was a guy that i met a couple of years ago sadly um so i found out he died in 2021 i think it was i didn't ever really check what happened to him right Recently, I just I said, what happened to this guy? I don't want to say his name just for the sake of it, but I found out he killed himself. I was like, damn, 
people really take their lives. And if my share my story can help someone, then why not? I, I get so many messages of people off the internet. And this is why I really want to go on to help people. But I don't know what keeps me alive sometimes. Sometimes it's, I, as I said, there's something in me that refuses to quit. Um, and let me give you some context. So I went to go and work at Lego part-time, right? And stepping back down from the influencing, the modeling and all the stuff I did, I felt really ashamed. So when I was at work, I'd hide from people because I was like, I've stepped down in everything. And it, it reached some points at work. I was like, look, what's this shame going to do for me? And then I got a letter from work that said that I could claim for my knee injury. So I was able to get the surgery through work. It's taught me a lot. Mm. Like rebuilding my life, I was angry, depressed. I was like, why am I still doing this crap for? I want my life back. But what happened to me was a year long event. It wasn't just one, it was several things. Even when I go and see the physio for my knee, she said to me that some of the things that happened to me would break someone. One thing could break them, but it was one thing Never after another. Seven, yeah. yeah, it was one thing I after I think of that time when you, you know, with, with your knee as well, where you start in surgery and like, mm. that must be quite tough because then, you got time then to reflect. So I whereas it, like when your mind's occupied, like you don't have that time to like think about the next thing. Like. Yeah. So what happened for me was, as I was saying to you earlier, that before the surgery, I was really nervous because I said to the surgeon, "You have no idea. This is a comeback mission because this this knee takes a year to recover anyway. So I've got another year to go anyway because it's a serious injury. You're better off breaking bones than you are tearing ligaments. Ligaments." take longer to heal. Um, so I had a full rupture of the ACL, tore the MCL, tore the meniscus and fractured the right leg. Like it was a serious injury. And I said to the surgeon, yeah, you have no idea what this means to me. And he explained to me, it's the surgery is like getting hit by a bus again. Cause I was hit by a bus essentially is the best way to describe it. I was, yeah. someone ran into my knee, but the metaphor is like being hit by a bus because it just completely snapped it. Yeah. Put, put, just took the knee out, right? <laughs> And after the surgery, I woke up, I was so excited, happy. I was like, well, just morphine, right? And it's the anesthetic. And then um, I was sleeping in and out. And when my friend came to visit me, I just started, said to the nurse, I just need some time alone. I just broke down in tears and I kissed Malcolm, my best friend on the forehead. And I'd never do that because it feels a bit fruity to me. But I said <laughs> to him, I broke down. I just said to him, thank you so much for being a good friend. And I apologize. I said to him, I haven't been the best friend over the years because I struggled emotionally to show the people I love and I care about how much they mean to me. And the surgery's given me a lot of time to reflect. It's a lot of time. Yeah. A lot of time. You mentioned there uh, your friend Marco. Malcolm, yeah. Malcolm, he's been there from day one. How did yeah. you guys meet? So we met we met a police cadets and um Oh really? Yeah, we met a police. So when we were younger, we so I I trained I actually qualified to become a special constable. So I did yeah. one shift and I quit. Malcolm got near towards the end. Malcolm and I have got one of the best relationships in the world. He inspires me. He's like a father figure to me in yeah. so many ways. He's taught me how much he's taught me just how to be a better man. And he's just like me. We're both very emotional. I denied it for years. And he said he thinks that what I'm going through now is I'm catching up on my emotions, yeah. funnily enough. <laughs> But, is, he, is he quite open then? Like he talks oh, Marcus very been, openly Marcus, about, yeah. Yeah, he's been open for years and I hated it. Cause I'm like, bro, I don't always need a hug. Like, do we need to talk yeah, about yeah, emotions? Yeah. So he says to me back in the past, sometimes when he said, can we talk about stuff? Apparently my response would be just like, fuck is that bro? I don't want to talk about that. Because yeah. <laughs> I denied it, but um, we've been friends for, I think it's 13 years now. Yeah, yeah. And he's been with me through thick and thin. Yeah. Um, 
it's been on that journey with you like the whole time. Like. It means a lot. Mm. He's never given up on me. He's never given up on the friendship when other people have because he said he's always seen through me. He said he's always understood me. That's good. You know, he, there's times I, I still, I feel really emotional because having a friendship like that is transformative. It changes your life. Not having many people have, have that as well, you know what I mean? Like they could have loads of different groups, but they don't actually have like a true friend. Like you said, who's actually been there for you through like thick and thin and like stuck by your side, even when them times get really hard. Like. Yeah, because there were times that Malcolm could have probably easily walked away from our friendship. And there was a time when um, I was quite tough throughout the years because I, 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 I didn't want to always be as emotional and show my friends how much I loved and cared about them. I showed them in other ways. But he just shouted at me and he said, bruv, just, he said, just be nice to me. Just show me some love. He said, that's what I need. And it broke me down. I was like, I'm so sorry, man. It's just the way I've been for so long and I'm learning to be a better friend now to him because mm. he's got his own struggles. He really does have his own struggles and he's seen me through thick and thin and I'm, I can't put into words just how much that friendship means to me. Mm. I can't put into words. I can never... Yeah, I, I suppose someone shows the true colors. You know, when you're down, like you know who them people are to pick you up, and he's obviously one of them friends. Which yeah, he's there's not many. Honestly, there's not many people like that. Like I, I always say, I can count my friends on one hand. Like if yeah. that, like I don't get it when someone's got twenty friends because like there's mm. twenty people going to be like you know what I mean. I'm I'm like I rather have like one or two like solid friends. Like you know what I mean. Like absolutely and you're right that quality is better than quantity and I think when I was younger I had kind of like a supermarket mentality where the more you have the better and it's not it's not necessarily true you'd rather have proper concentrated food than you would to have things that are processed and you know you don't have enough of it but Malcolm's relationship is like it's, it's like organic whole food a lot of the other relationships I had were like junk food they were good for a short time it was a microwave mentality yeah and I've just learned so much from my friendship with him he's been, as I said, a father. What's well, the main figure. thing he's, um, you think he's really taught you or something which, mm. I mean, from, from speaking with yourself, it sounds like he's really made you kind of open up to emotions and reflect. Yeah. yeah. I would say that's the, probably the biggest lesson he's taught me that it's okay to be an emotional man. Yeah. Cause for years I hated it for years. I denied it. He's always been true and value. He's, he's been true to himself, authentic, has his principles about him and he doesn't deter. He believes yeah. in love highly and he doesn't change on that. He's uncompromising. Is he religious? No, but he went yeah. through a religious, it's funny, yeah. Malcolm, uh, Malcolm, he doesn't mind, uh, he wouldn't mind me saying this, but he went through a religious stint where he went to church for choir because he just wanted to sing <laughs> and to be around community. So it's funny, but Malcolm and I, we're, we're really similar, you know, we're really similar Did guys. you quit from day one at the police cadet? So, so um, at the police cadet, police um, yeah. Malcolm was, um, we, I used to refer to him as like, almost like Snorlax. He's a big guy. He would just sleep in the back and he was somehow was able to get rank above me. I was the kind of kid that I was either really excited for class or if I didn't get the attention I wanted I'll just shut off and stay silent I was either one of the two yeah, yeah Malcolm was likable the gentle giant and I remember there was a time he was running and he said he was really tired and I just laughed I was like bro what are you tired from man <laughs> um and we just started, been doing <laughs> yeah and we, we just started spending time together yeah. and our friendship grew like it blossomed um yeah like you know it really makes me feel emotional because it- You can see it, yeah. 
it's because I think growing up, I obviously not having a father figure, I wanted a sibling as well, but having Malcolm has been like having a brother. He's like filled. Best friend. He's filled like um, that kind of like a vibe to what you was missing. So obviously he's mm. came into your life and he's like filled that and that. No, that's incredible. Like. He has been massive. Yeah. He's been massive in my life. And I think, yeah, I can't put it into words sometimes. My appreciation my, and my gratitude for him as a friend. I can never put it into words, honestly. Have you told him that? He knows that as well, yeah. Because I think sometimes, like, having these conversations, like, it's making me reflect. Like, have I told my friends, like, what they've done for me? And, and sometimes, I don't know, you go through life and you, you don't say love you enough to your parents or my, my mum and dad are... I, I say in in your case, like your friends as well. You know what I mean? Like, because obviously, yeah. Don't like, know, when you're there, it's like drinks or getting drunk or whatever. And like sometimes it's having that time to have like. Because I've got I've got two really close friends. One doesn't really talk about his emotions as much as the other one is like the opposite. Like the opposite. Yeah. He he's really deep. Um, I could be. I think I'm quite a deep person, but. Hmm you find that like, you mold yourself differently depending on who, who you're speaking with. Right? Of course. And I, I tell Malcolm a lot more recently to us how much I, his friendship has probably saved me in many ways. Yeah. Yeah, he's somebody that, yeah, I just can't, you know, sometimes you, there's only so much words I can honestly yeah. find, but I often say to people, like we would cook together every weekend. We did a lot of stuff. We spend a lot more time together now. I call him a lot more because in the past I didn't like phone calls. I hated phone calls. I'm like, bro, I could be doing something different. But I looked at it and I just thought, if I lost Markham today, I'd be devastated. I'd be heartbroken. Yeah. And we've and he's spoken to me about his mental and I'd be heartbroken. Honestly, I, because I think, as men, we never, I think you probably know this as a guy, we say thank you in our own ways, but to say thank you to someone and saying thank you for giving me life and thank you for being a good friend is, is that's healing. Mm. It, and it takes a lot of balls as well. You could, you know, to be so open and, 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 and say thank you for everything he's done. Cause you know what I mean? A lot of people hold it in and then sometimes it's too late. You know what I mean? Like you don't know one day to the next, you know what I mean? So I think it's important to always have them conversations with yeah. your friends or like family because you know what I mean? Like life, life can be short sometimes and you, you always hear these stories and it's just like, oh God, like, you know what I mean? So I mean, it's good that you've had that time. I mean, talking about obviously like mental health, you know, like we spoke early before the podcast about like mental health within kind of the black community. Do you think there's a bit of stigma, do you think, surrounding obviously people of kind of ethnic minorities not always feeling as open maybe to like speak about it? I think stigma is an understatement yeah. because a lot of us are afraid to become institutionalised, sectioned as a result of speaking about mental health. And also it's just not particularly cool. It's, I as I said before, that our parents put down the bedrock for us to be able to survive into in society. But as a result of that, we've missed out, our parents have missed out on years of proper mental health um, awareness, proper mental health help, 
But there is a stigma, but I think our generation, millennial and Gen Z are really starting to change the tide of things. Cause you know, my mom's heard me on podcasts and she go, I never knew that was what, that, that was what um, OCD was about. She listened, she, don't, she won't always say it, but my mom listens. Um, I've spoken about addiction, porn addiction too. Yeah, I've read I've, that. I've spoken yeah, yeah. about a lot of different things, uh, eating disorder, disordered eating and so much more. So I think it is changing. It is changing. And I think it's just up to our generation now to really move that needle forward and to realize that. So I was reading into different types of intelligence. There's social intelligence, emotional intelligence. Um, in, I think it's IQ is another one. There's also adversity intelligence. So the ability to come through adversity on the other side. And this is something I think we still need to teach a lot of kids that life is tough, you know, life is hard. There's been many days when I, I'm paying off my debts. Like last month, I paid off two grand. This month, I paid off 1.5 grand. Still need to pay my therapist off, um, 2K. But I could give up at any point, but I'm trying to hold on to believe that there's something far bigger. Mm. There's something more that I've got to give to this world. And I don't want to make, the world should be an easier world in some regards, but sometimes you need adversity. Sometimes you need struggle. And I think because of that, the Maybe. black community has gone through so much adversity and so much struggle, not to say other communities haven't. I'm only speaking for the community that I understand and I've experienced. But I think as a result of that, there's been a lot of emotional intelligence lost. There's been so much other types of intelligence and so much more that we've lost out on as a result because we've been in such a survival mode. And you know what survival does to people? Mm. Survival makes you see scarcity in everything, but you can also see abundance through it because you're like, wow, I've just got this opportunity to be able to do something. Yeah. So there is a stigma, but I think the stigma is slowly changing. Yeah, and bit by bit. And like, I think definitely with like, you mentioned there about like the generations that like, I think it's amazing, like Gen Z and like millennials now mm. are having these like tough conversations and Absolutely. like, they're not always like the most like, easiest conversations are hard but I also think like they're so important as well because if people are not talking about it then there's never going to be that kind of awareness or that kind of like education because you kind of spoke about I was really surprised to find out only 20% are kind of like a male therapist yeah yeah I think right? it yeah. is I think it is about that three percent are black from what I understand only three percent yeah, yeah and I think is it 20 percent are male yeah well the therapy industry is a very female dominated field and it's because people argue well the science shows that women are more interested in people and men are more interested in things and I think this is why I want to be a therapist because I think a therapist because I've I've become more interested in people I listen to people's stories and I'm just like wow like something that breaks one person makes another person, something that makes another person breaks somebody else. Mm. And it's just made me more interested. But I think we need more males in um, teaching. We need more males in caregiving positions and for it not to be looked down upon, not for, for it to not be mocked, for it to be taken seriously. I think that's one of the best ways to make the world a better place. Yeah, yeah. That's masculinity because a weak man is one who preys on vulnerable um, people and wants to create, wants power and so much more. So, I think there needs to be more initiatives put into place to get encourage more male therapists, to encourage more men in primary school teaching positions. Because I'm sure you could probably testify to this, but when you see a man in a nurturing care and role, it's a bit like, wow. There's something powerful about a strong man. Yeah. Who has the ability to nurture you and to be like, I believe in you, but he still has the ability to be tough. And yeah. they often say that women teach 
women love children as if they are their only, that's their only world. Men teach children to love themselves in relation to the world. So men teach children to be competitive. Men teach children, especially to be like, you got to get this, this adversity. Not to say mothers don't do that, but there's something special about a masculine love. There's something special about it, you know? I just wanted to kind of finish it on, like what advice would you give to kind of like young males out there? in regards to either their kind of mental health or, but also like OCD, because obviously that kind of really opened up my eyes in the podcast today. I would, well, I think in regards to OCD, a lot of the work I'm trying to do is trying to change the idea in the public consciousness about what OCD is. But I often say to people, if you're struggling in silence, if your thoughts tell somebody, and I think Paddy, the UFC fighter said it best, he would rather his friend cry on his shoulders and have to attend his funeral. That's powerful. That. So powerful. I remember that it went viral. Didn't yeah, it? Like, he lost yeah. his friend to suicide. Do you know how horrible that must and be? And he went on to fight as well, like that yeah. night. Like, that must have yeah. been, I can't even imagine what he had gone through. And why I say that is because we lose too many men to suicide and people will be like, you know, well, they shouldn't do that. But there's a lot of men struggling in silence. There's a lot of humans in general struggling in silence. But I think for a lot of men, they feel like they're burdening someone. They're supposed to be strong. They're supposed to be tough. They're not supposed to show their emotions. And one thing I've done really and truly in my friendship circles now, alongside with Malcolm and other people, I have friends around me who nurture me friends who hold me accountable, friends who remind me it's okay to feel emotional, but you've got to keep going. Life, mm-hmm. the world needs you. And I'm, I'm trying to be with a lot more friends who nurture me and they allow me to be the best version of myself. So that's something I would think that's mm-hmm. really important. Connect with yourself. And one of the things I had to do to connect with myself, and this is something advice I'd give to any human, especially men, find people who celebrate you when you struggle to celebrate yourself. That's yeah. something I really struggled with. I really struggled to see how much good I've done in the world and how much I had been through. And for again, for men that are struggling, please don't don't take your life because you're trying to get out of pain. Suicide doesn't stop the pain, it only moves it. Mm. I've been suicidal. I contemplated how to take my life. I thought, do I take book? Do I get books? Do I jump in the river? Um, because at least it will drown me. I was like, that was too painful. Do I cut myself? I don't like needles. I don't like blood. Do I take pills? Do I get a gun? I was thinking all sorts. And I remember there was that night, I wrote suicide notes as well. I, so, I wrote goodbye to everyone. And I don't talk about this very openly. This is the first time I'm yeah. speaking about it. I wrote goodbyes. I was prepared to take my life. Um, and I said, if I don't sleep, I can't do this no more. And I woke up and I just cried my eyes out when I woke up in the morning. And I said, how could I think like that? I was about to take my life from the people that love me the most. That's because I was so caught up in my own pain. Did you get rid of the letters? Like, cause I still have them um, there to look back on. 29th of July, 2022, I wrote my suicide. I was going to say that. Yeah. Is it, is it like the letters that would scare me as like a reminder, but also you can use it as like, this isn't what I want to do. Yeah. I looked at it and I just thought, This time last year, I was in a very different place. I wanted to die. There's no, there's no two ways about that. I didn't want to be alive anymore. I saw no way out. What was that? What was that moment where you was like, this isn't, this isn't right. This is, is it when you woke up in the morning? Yeah, when I woke up in the morning and I cried my eyes out and I spoke to my therapist and I told her, you know, and she said to me, Sean, that's a compulsion with OCD, but I told her I'm really struggling. I saw no way out. 
I'm still rebuilding my life. Like yeah, I make yeah. no jokes about this to this day. I'm very open and honest with people. I still have my struggles. There's moments where even recently I was just a bit like, what the fuck am I doing this for? I, all I've been doing is grinding for the last year. I'm still going through. I've still got my need to keep going. I've still got my debts to pay off, but I'm like, I'm going to get there. You will. Like, That's the plan. Yeah. I'm going to get there. Like I, um, a therapist, when she heard my story, she was honestly a bit like, no way. She, she invited me onto her podcast and she opened a GoFundMe. She put $800 in, $1,000 actually. Do you know how ridiculous that is? And I broke down. I said to her, you don't understand how much that means right now. You're helping me get out of debt. You're helping me take a little bit of a load off yeah. my back. So it's the kindness of my therapist and the kindness of other people are some of the things that have kept me alive and they've yeah. helped me to see hope when I saw nothing. It's like they've... Um gave you purpose but you've also got purpose for yourself as well you know yeah. you can like people have helped you now you can kind of take that and help other people absolutely pay it forward going for, yeah going through the same way like absolutely i think that's amazing and i just think on that now it's honestly it's been incredible to have you on sean to kind of share your story today and um yeah we've touched upon like quite a few things and um, really opened up if anyone wants to kind of follow your journey your story would you like to share that on the podcast yeah and they can find me on social media all my social media Sean Flores or Deshaun Flores T-H-E-S-H-A-U-N F-L-O-R-E-S and reach out and have a conversation I always try to make time for people it's something yeah. that's very important to me I've got some exciting stuff on the way that again helps me to give stuff and um, put stuff to look forward to I'm working on some exciting projects as I said, I'm hoping to maybe train to be a therapist or to work in the mental health space. So it's exciting. Yeah. Like, yeah, you should listen to the one with Danny Rahim because mm. he's like a life coach and like therapist. And um, he had, have you listened to that one? He, he had a really tough upbringing with um, his his mum having kind of like um, bipolar. And, yeah, I need to listen yeah. to it. I think I, I started, but I need to go back and finish yeah. that because I've been really focused on a lot of emotional and personal yeah. growth at the moment, you know? Yeah, I think it's find, finding that time for yourself as well. Yeah. You don't want to over overwhelm yourself and like mm. take take too much on kind of thing. But yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today, Shay. So definitely, no, thank yeah, you so yeah. much for giving me the chance to tell my story and hopefully me sharing my story as somebody else's healing would definitely help other people. So yeah, thank you. Mm.